0: Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Strand. This is an independent, listener supported show. To support it, go to WeirdHistoryPodcast.com. After the dust settled on the Korean War, and during the early part of the Cold War, North Korea honestly looked kind of good. To an outside observer, it looked like the more functional, more put together, and more potentially prosperous. Half of the two states on the Korean Peninsula. And this is unusual for somebody in 2018. Any more we think of North Korea as the failed part of Korea, and we also think of communism, and in particular Stalinism, as a failed system, just on its face, as a matter of course. However, in the 1950s, it was hardly a settled question about what kind of economic system would actually produce more success for its respective countries. More agricultural output, more industrial output, more military success, more going to space. At that point, no one really knew yet. The Cold War hadn't been won. In a lot of ways, the Eastern Bloc was ahead, and that was very much the case on the Korean Peninsula. I've mentioned before, the regime of Singman Rhee in the South was not what we would call a functional or democratic one. It was not the kind of regime that anyone, I hope, in the modern United States would want to endorse, identify with, or be part of. Singman Rhee was the type of guy who made his political opponents disappear. And again, I'm eventually going to do an entire episode on what South Korea has been up to from the 40s up until the early 1990s, when they get their act together. At the same time, and I've mentioned this before as well, uh, prior to the Korean War, the North was where the industry was. The industry Korea had was in the North, and pretty much everything south of Seoul was agriculture. Sure, there were large cities like Busan, but they were the exception. And this relative superiority during the Cold War colors much of how North Korea sees itself today. Talk to North Korean officials today, and the Cold War is kind of like the good old days to them. According to Victor Cha, who is a former director of Asian Affairs for the National Security Council in the George W. Bush administration, you can't really understand modern Korea's actions and modern Korea's incentives without really getting their nostalgia for the Cold War as a golden age cha writes the following in his book the impossible state he says quote, the cold war has been and will continue to be the best days of the north korean nation state it was during a period of about three and a half decades beginning in 1945 that the north korean leadership and its people saw history on its side by most metrics the north was doing better than its rival regime in the south There was a confidence in Pyongyang that their system was better and that unification, the ultimate Korean prize, would eventually be its destiny. Despite the failed attempt to unify the peninsula through war in 1950, events after the war bolstered North Korean confidence. Aid from two communist patrons, political turmoil in the rival South, and the American entanglement in Vietnam were all perceived as trends that favored Pyongyang. If you travel to Pyongyang today, you would see neat eight-lane-wide thoroughfares, carefully manicured public spaces, and a city planned around iconography and monuments dedicated to Kim Il-sung, the first leader of North Korea. But you would also notice that almost everything looks retro, in the sense that it was all built in the 1950s and 1960s, when the North had the resources and capacity to govern as a fairly well-to-do communist state." By the way, if that author, Victor Cha, if his name sounds familiar, it's because he has been in the news recently. If you paid attention to foreign affairs during the George W. Bush administration, you might remember him. But he has also been in the news for not becoming the ambassador to South Korea. Cha opposes first strike policy on North Korea for the pretty good reason that if that happened, millions of people would die. However, that disqualified him in the eyes of the current administration. So Victor Cha, who is eminently qualified to be ambassador to South Korea, isn't. And as of this recording, in March of 2018, the United States does not have an ambassador to South Korea. But anyway, it's also important to remember that during the setup of the North Korean state in the 1940s and in the 1950s, what they were getting from Kim Il-sung actually was an improvement over what they had gotten from the Japanese. Japanese occupation of Korea was brutal, was exploitative, and was abusive. Again, Koreans weren't able to even use their own names, they weren't able to practice their own religion, and they were encouraged not to use their native language. Suddenly, you had a regime that was Korean and aggressively so. The Kim Il-sung regime, from the earliest days, really tried to cultivate Korean nationalism. Again, this is ironic, given that Kim Il-sung himself spent so much of his time in his youth, the vast majority of his youth, outside Korea. And, again, he spoke Chinese and Russian fairly well, but his ostensibly native language came back to him with some difficulty, only after he was head of state in North Korea. But bear in mind when we're thinking about this is that a lot of the North Koreans in the 40s and 50s and into the 60s aren't comparing their situation to some imagined democratic ideal. They're not comparing themselves to the United States or Japan or South Korea. They are comparing their situation to Japanese occupation. So, when you think about enthusiasm for Kim Il-sung, and for his regime during the early days during the Cold War, sure, a lot of it is hyperbole and a lot of it is fake, but quite a lot of it doesn't need to be. He was perceived, not without reason, as a savior of North Korea. And again, his role was hyperbolically exaggerated, but he really was a resistance fighter against the Japanese, albeit one with lots of Chinese and Soviet backing. I've quoted Andrei Lankov, the Russian professor who lives in South Korea and used to live in North Korea before, and here he is again. Lankov says, quote, We should not forget that Kim Il-sung was imposing his system on a country whose population overwhelmingly consisted of the sons and daughters of pre-modern subsistence farmers. These people had never been exposed to democracy, even in theoretical terms, Kim Il-sung's system seemed to be better than what they had experienced before, as they were at mercy first of a traditional absolute monarchy and then a remarkable brutal colonial regime. Lankov goes on. At the time, believe it or not, the material situation did not look so bad for the average North Korean. In the early 1960s, tens of thousands of ethnic Koreans fled China for North Korea in order to escape the famine and chaos resulting from the Great Leap Forward and the other insane experiments of Chairman Mao. These refugees were granted housing and assigned work by the North Korean authorities. A man who was part of this exodus recently recalled his surprise at walking into a North Korean shop for the first time and discovering plastic buckets of various shapes and sizes for sale. Everybody could buy these wonderful items without coupons, and there was not even a need to queue." Later on in this series, we're going to get into the perspectives of North Korean people who have gone the other direction, who have gone from North Korea to China to South Korea, also occasionally to Japan, other Asian countries, and even the United States. And many of those North Korean refugees have a kind of reverse perspective. When they see other countries, such as China, they are astounded by the amount of material wealth that is present there but not in their home but here during the heyday of the cold war just the opposite is true you have people escaping china and going to north korea also during this time period north korea has not one but two big patron countries it has both the soviet union and the people's republic of china Both of these countries have provided it with material support during the Korean War, and both of them continued to provide it with material and political support, and North Korea would often play them against each other. Now, it's really easy for somebody living in the United States to look at the Eastern Bloc of the mid-20th century and see it as one big, scary, unified, you know, red area, but... It wasn't. There were some really important divisions between Eastern Bloc countries. And there was a big split between the Soviet Union and China. North Korea tried to play them off each other, getting aid from one and then another. Basically like a kid saying, Hey, Dad, I want something. Dad says no, so I go ask Mom, rinse, repeat, etc. So North Korea was able to parlay its position between these two other big communist powers to its advantage materially and politically. However, just because the North Korean state was doing well in the context of the Cold War and in the context of communism, that doesn't mean that they were wholly bought into Stalinism. Instead, the North Korean state, from the very beginning, was constructing its own kind of authoritarian ideology, and a big part of the authoritarian ideology that initially made North Korea work, and still makes North Korea, quote-unquote, work, was dividing the country into who was loyal and who wasn't. I'm going to quote Lankov one more time. He says, quote, "...one of the truly unique features of Kim Il-sung's North Korea was the re-emergence of hereditary groups, each having a clearly defined set of privileges and restrictions." In this regard, Kim Il-sung's North Korea was surprisingly reminiscent of a pre-modern society with its order of fixed or hereditary castes, or estates as they were sometimes known in pre-modern Europe. Starting from 1957, the authorities began to conduct painstaking checks on the family background of every North Korean. This massive project was largely completed by the mid-1960s and led to the emergence of what is, essentially, a caste system. This system is known in North Korea as Songbun. According to the Songbun system, every North Korean belongs to one of three strata, loyal, wavering, or hostile. In most cases, people are classified in accordance with what they or their direct male ancestors did in the 1940s and the early 1950s. Children and grandchildren of former landlords, Christian and Buddhist priests, private entrepreneurs, and clerks in the Japanese colonial administration, as well as the descendants of other suspicious elements, like, say, courtesans or female shamans, are classified as part of the hostile stratum. This involves a great deal of discrimination. For example, people born into this caste cannot be accepted to prestigious colleges ...or reside in major cities, even if they are the culprit's great-grandchildren." And, of course, it is people who are members of the higher caste who are eligible for jobs in the government and military. So, already, this is making North Korea look very different from other Eastern Bloc communist countries... ...which attempted to paper over and get rid of old cultural differences in a lot of other places communism attempted to chuck out everything that was associated with that country's idea of nationness with all of the old order be it hereditary caste or culture or the rest of it it was gone however in north korea something that we'll see again and again a lot of the kim regime has reappropriated koreanness for its own sake and a lot of this contributed To North Korea's isolationism very early on. Uh, Again, I keep comparing things to the modern day, but any more we think of their isolationism as because of happenstance, as a result of the Cold War ending. Uh, The Berlin Wall fell, the Soviet Union went away, and someone forgot to fix North Korea. That's certainly part of it. That has contributed to their present-day isolationism, and North Korea did have more contact during the Cold War. Again, Andrei Lankov, the author I quoted earlier, he used to live in Pyongyang as an exchange student. However, from their early days, that isolationism was cultivated. It was intentional. And I know I'm quoting a ton of other people this episode, but B. R. Myers, an expert on North Korean propaganda and culture, he writes about Korean isolationism in the Cold War and says, quote, East European diplomats had already begun reporting home about the xenophobia in Pyongyang. Some were cursed and pelted with rocks by children in the street. Koreans who had married Europeans were pressured to divorce or banished from the capital. Internally, the East German embassy compared these practices to Nazi Germany. One Soviet wife of a Korean citizen was beaten unconscious by provincial police when she attempted to travel to Pyongyang. In 1965, the Cuban ambassador to the DPRK, a black man, was squiring his wife and some Cuban doctors around a city when locals surrounded their car, pounding it and shouting racial epithets. Police called to the scene had to beat the mob back with truncheons. The level of training of the masses is extremely low, a high ranking official later told the shaken diplomat. They cannot distinguish between friends and foes. This was precisely the mindset that the regime sought to instill. The point here is that during the Cold War, North Korea is in a good position, it is outperforming the South. It is outperforming its most recent history, Japanese occupation followed by war. It is playing off two great powers, the Soviet Union and China, against itself. It is repurposing old Japanese propaganda about how exceptional they are as a nation for its own purposes. And it is cultivating an ideology that will exist to this day. That ideology is essential to understanding North Korea. In Pyongyang, there is an entire tower dedicated to it. That ideology is known as Juche, often translated to self-reliance. And we'll talk about it next episode. As always, this is a 100% independent, listener-supported show. Thank you all for supporting the show every month. I really do appreciate it. Couldn't do it without you. If you want to support the show, and you absolutely should, because it's how it happens, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com, click the link, do the thing. Also, give us reviews and ratings on iTunes. Uh, That helps other people find this podcast. I am on social media. I am on Twitter. If you want to follow me, I am at Joe Streckert. I make no guarantees that I will actually tweet about history sometimes it's puns about superheroes the podcast is on facebook facebook.com slash weird history podcast thank you all very much for listening talk to you next time bye Mm